We're starting a new series within our series on Mark this morning. It's going to go for, for several weeks. In fact, Ethan, let me have that first slide because I, I, I just have a, a graphic for it. It's just called The Places of the Passion. And you know, we're just using this to visit the different, obviously, places between these passages, Mark 14, 32, 15, 47. So we have a couple messages that, that, that take place in the garden. You know, we've got one at Caiaphas' house, one's, one at Pilate's court, one at the Praetorium. We've got a few messages you know, there at Golgotha and um, you know, a couple at the tomb. Again, just to, uh, just to bring some emphasis to the, the passion of our Lord and Savior and, and, I don't know, maybe approach it from a different angle than we have in the past. Perhaps, perhaps not. But uh, that's, that's where we're going for the next several weeks as we, as we start to wind down with Mark. We, we're getting close to the end, believe it or not. But our first message this morning is Mark 14, 32 to 42. So you go ahead and go there, Mark 14, 32 to 42. And the title is simply just, In the Garden, Surrendered. In the Garden, Surrendered. And just a few things we will see this morning is we're talking about the garden, so we're talking about this place, and, and we're going to see that it, it was a place of peace, a place of peace, a place of pressure, a place of prayer, obviously, we, we know the passage, and a place of priorities. So we have peace, we have pressure, we have prayer, and a place of priorities in the garden. So if you will, let's go to 14, verse 32, we'll read that passage, and then dive in from there. Verse 32 says, They came to a place, now they of course is Jesus and all the disciples, right? They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I've prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. 35 says, he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground, began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. 37, and he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came, found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Very familiar passage. Jesus and the disciples there in the garden. But the first thing I want us to see, just verse 32, is the idea that this was a place of peace. It was a place of peace. Verse 30 says, They came to a place named Gethsemane. Now we understand that there's a good chance that it belonged to a friend, you know, the friend of the disciples or a friend of Jesus. 
Uh, and it was, it was not a huge place. It was, it was a smaller garden enclosed by a wall. It had a gate and, of course, it had olive trees. But we also understand that the Gethsemane was, was often visited by Jesus and his disciples. You know, we can look over in Luke and in John. And, and so this was a familiar place for them to go. It was a normal place for them to go. It, it was just, it was kind of a refuge. In, in fact, you know, it, it was a place where, you know, Jesus could probably find solitude from, from the crowds and from ministry. He could, he could probably find a private moment to commune with his father, you know, away from hustle and bustle and, and distractions. It was, it was a sanctuary from the attacks of his enemies, and even a place of refreshment from, from long days. So it was this place of peace. But here's what's interesting. You probably know this, but Gethsemane in Aramaic means olive press. Okay, it means olive press. You know, olives were collected. They were placed in a press. And oil was extracted from the olives under intense pressure. You, you see where we're going, right? We're in Gethsemane. We're in the olive press where olives are put under intense pressure to extract what's valuable. So, so Jesus is entering his, his personal olive press, as it were. And, and you know, the, we can picture it this way, that the sweet oil of, of grace and submission would, would be extracted from him under intense pressure. But that's our setting. That's, that's this garden. It was, it, was a, it was a getaway for Jesus. It was a place where we have to figure he could get away from crowds. People couldn't find him. They couldn't track him down. He could be there and he could be alone or he could be hanging out with just a few of the disciples. But it'd be calm. It'd be quiet. There'd be solitude. There'd be peace. Anybody here like places like that? Oh, I, you know, I, I am... I'm an, I'm an introvert by nature. And, and, you know, if you know anything about, I'm not introvert like, you know, I hide in a cave. It's just my personality type. But if you know anything about introverts, you know, we have to have, we have, to have some time where we can be away from hustle and bustle and, and people and noise and crowds. And we have to have a, a place where we can be, just be, and, and, you know, have some quiet and some calm and, and, and no distractions. So those, man, I, this, this resonates so well with me because thinking about, especially being in ministry and, and, you know, especially Jesus because he just was always, he was always on, always in teaching mode, always, you know, getting questions and having to do things. And so for him to have this place of peace where he could just be for a short while and, and as I said, commune with his father. It's just, it's just a wonderful, a wonderful picture. So we have this place, but we have this olive press, Gethsemane, the olive press. And so we understand the next couple of verses show us that it was also a place of pressure. Because it was a place of peace, but it was a place of pressure. Look at verse 33 and 34. Now we understand he took with him Peter, James, and John. But he began to be very distressed and troubled. Verse 34 says, He said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Well, well the first thing we notice is we, we've got his intimate posse. We've got Peter, James, and John. All right? they're, they're the ones that they got, to, they got to do the special stuff. In fact, this is, this is the third time 
that they've got to do something cool with Jesus. This is the third time he shared something with only them, with only these three guys. First time was, was raising Jairus' daughter back in Luke 8. Okay, they, he took them with them. We know Luke 9, he was transfigured. Okay, he was transfigured, so those three were there. So this is the third, this is the third significant time he's taken them aside and saying that just come with me. Come with me. But we also understand there's a spiritual message to be had within this. In fact, I, I, I pulled a quote from, uh, from Dr. Dr. Morgan, G. Campbell Morgan. And, and this is what he wrote about just the message that we take from these three events. And Jesus taking aside these three men. Here's what he said. He said, each occasion has something to do with death. Each occasion has something to do with death. In Jairus' house, Jesus was victorious over death. At the Mount of Transfiguration, he was glorified through death because he, Moses, and Elijah were talking about his exodus in Jerusalem in Luke 9.32. And then here in the garden, Jesus was surrendered to death. Now he goes on to write, since James was the first of the apostles to die, John the last to die, and Peter experienced all this persecution and eventually was crucified, these lessons, now think about this, these lessons were very practical for their own lives. I mean, he was giving them these, he was teaching them these different things about death, understanding that they were going to face some tough times. And so he says, man, this, this was very, there was a strong spiritual and practical message for these three. So they're going deeper into the garden. What's he do? He says, all right, you guys stay here. I don't know, maybe around the gate or so. He says, Peter, James, John, you guys come with me. He says, he took with them. And so they go a little deeper into the garden. They get to have a deeper experience. And isn't that the way it usually is? Jesus says, look, come with me. I'm going to take you deeper. We're going to go deeper. And he takes these three men and says, we're, we're going to go a little deeper into the garden, a little further in. And, and he's got this experience for them and this opportunity for them to pray for their teacher as he undergoes this pressure. And the first pressure we see is, is internal pressure. Okay, there's internal pressure. In fact, the language, the language reveals intense emotional and spiritual trial. Okay, intense emotional and spiritual trial. It says Jesus becomes noticeably distressed. Okay, noticeably distressed. Not just, you know, he's having just kind of a tough moment. No, he's, he's visibly we get the idea that he is visibly shaken. He is visibly distressed as they're going deeper into the garden. In fact, the word, we've seen this word before. It's ekthambeho. All right, we saw it back in nine, Mark 9.15, and we'll see it in Mark 16.5. That ekthambeho means to be alarmed or, or to be you know, deeply distressed or, or, excuse me, just you know, under a great deal of duress. But it says he was also troubled, which is, which is the word adamoneo which kind of goes along with Exambeo, but, but it means to be in extreme anguish. All right, so he was alarmed, he was distressed, he was in extreme anguish. And then it says his soul, his, his psyche is, is the actual Latin word, was overwhelmed with such sorrow, okay, with such sorrow, perilipos, he was deeply grieved. In fact, in fact, the the... The language gives this picture that he was literally 
and understand, he was literally surrounded by overwhelming sorrow. He was surrounded by overwhelming sorrows. So he was engulfed by overwhelming sorrows. He was distressed. He was alarmed. He was in anguish. He was deeply sorrow. And, and he, was, he was so distressed so much that, that we get the idea that it threatened to extinguish his life. I mean, he was that full of distress. I mean, he was that burdened. We understand that the full impact of his death and its spiritual consequences had to have struck Jesus as he was going in. And, and again, we get the idea that, that he just is staggering under the weight of these things. I mean, what's, what's one of the most horrific things he's facing? The, the, the prospect of, of his upcoming alienation from his father. It's a horrific thing. So he is distressed. He is alarmed. He is full of anguish. So he took with him these three. And we, and we get the idea, you know, they're going a little further into the garden, and he is just, I don't, you know, I don't know if he's stumbling, or, but we get the idea that, that he is visibly shaken. And they can tell he's visibly shaken. Which, again, as I was, as I was re-looking at, the, at this, you know, I, I feel bad for Peter, James, and John. I mean, I, you know, they, they got to have some cool experiences, but, but I feel bad because, man, it's been an emotional evening. Think about it. I mean, they're, they're coming off of the, of the Last Supper and talking about betrayal and, and all these things. And so now they, they get to the garden and, you know, they're probably talking more on the way. And, you know, Jesus tells the other guys, you, you stay here, you three come with me. And they start going further in. And they can tell, they can tell that there is something weighing heavily on him to the point where, I mean, you can read it in his face and in his demeanor and his deportment and everything else. So he's, he's moving in. He's distressed. But then, but then Luke adds this, this element and he says, uh, his sweat became like drops of blood. Over in Luke twenty-two forty-four, it says this, And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Now again, depends on who you read, who you study, how you, how you look at this. Because some, some commentators say, well, it became like large drops of sweat. But there's some credence to those who say it could have actually been this um, rare physical phenomenon called hematidrosis. Okay, hematidrosis. In fact, I think you put it up there. You can write that down and impress your friends. Hematidrosis. But what occurs with hematidrosis is under great emotional stress, tiny blood vessels rupture in the sweat glands and produce a mixture of blood and sweat. Okay, tiny vessels rupture and produce a mixture of blood and sweat. There was, a, there was a prominent Roman physician named Galen, and he wrote, he wrote it this way. In fact, I'll read it in the original and, and then tell you what it means. But he wrote, Contingere interum poros ex multo, o fervido spirito adeo dilatere, 
Ut etiam exdias sanguis per ero, fiatque sudo sanguineus. Okay, and the interpretation is, I'm just checking. Sometimes some people speak Latin. But, but this is what Galen, he says, cases sometimes happen in which, through mental pressure, the pores may be so dilated that the blood may issue from them so that there may be a bloody sweat. Well, why, Pastor, why, why is that even important? He was under intense pressure. Intense pressure from within. Intense emotional duress. Intense spiritual agony. And, I mean, Jesus was a fit guy. Right? He, hadn't, he didn't have a history of, of any kind of illness or anything else. So for someone to write that could have been hematidrosis, that's highly unusual from a healthy person. It just, it just doesn't happen. Or it only happens if there's something really extreme going on. You understand? There's something really extreme going on. He's got extreme things happening within. There is intense internal pressure. He was under extreme mental, emotional, and spiritual pressure. And, and I think sometimes we, we, we just kind of... we. So, yeah, Jesus was in the garden. He was praying fervently. And yeah, he was, it might have been blood. It might have just a lot of sweat. I don't know. But we, he was under phenomenal pressure. I'm not sure that any of us here can say, I, I've experienced that kind of pressure. Now, I would say we've all experienced pressure. You know, if, if you are married or if you have children or if you draw breath. You've experienced pressure. But I'm not sure we can then, any of us can identify with being under such mental anguish that, that you know, it causes us to sweat profusely so that maybe even blood vessels burst within us. He was under extreme internal pressure. But I also think that there was infernal pressure. We have internal pressure. I think there was infernal pressure. Now again, I understand in the harmony, the text doesn't say Satan was there beating him up. I get that. But, but what's interesting to me, and I'll share a few things with you. First of all, Satan knew where he was. Okay? Satan was following Jesus. He was tracking along with him. Jesus was on Satan's radar. All right, <laughs> they were there. He was watching to see what would happen. I mean, he was entering Judas. So he was in the vicinity. He was hanging out, seeing what was going on. So we, we, we know Satan was around, and we could see Satan trying to attack and overload the Lord. All right? It, it, it just makes sense. And it makes more sense when we bring in Luke twenty two forty three, 43, which says, Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Why is that important? Well, that same language... The same language is used back over in Matthew 4.11. Where, where, what's happening there? He's in the wilderness, and he's been put under pressure by Satan, and he's tired, and he's worn out, and he's beat down, and angel comes and strengthens him. Same language. Because this is what we know. We know that Satan had been working from the beginning 
to thwart God's plan, to mess up his design. We know he was in Eden. We know he had a hand with Cain. We know he tried to corrupt bloodlines of the Messiah. We know that, that you know, he surely influenced Herod to kill babies in Bethlehem to mess up the bloodline. We know that he tempted Jesus to bypass the cross and just take the crown. So we, we understand that. So now we're in Gethsemane, and adding to the pressure, I, I think Satan is there, and he is hammering on him. And God says, sends an angel to him. So we have this place of pressure, and there's internal pressure, and, and there's infernal pressure. And he tells these three, Peter, James, and John, he says, look, stay behind. And he tells them one thing to begin with. He says, I want you to keep watch. Okay, the term means to be alert or pay strict attention. Be alert. Pay attention. I'm just going to go a little further. He says, I'm going to go a little deeper into the garden. And when he says deeper, he just means like, like a stone's throw. Right? Not like a football throw. Just like a, you could toss a stone. They can still see him. They can still hear him. He says, stay here. Be alert. Pay attention. That's all you have to do. I'm going to go a little further in to pray. So we have, we have this place of peace, but now it's become a place of pressure. So Jesus goes a little further in because he is under attack. He's under all kinds of pressure. So he goes into what? He goes into pray. So we say, see this place becomes, as it has before, it becomes a place of prayer, verse 35 and 36. 35 says, He went a little beyond them, fell to the ground, and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So we see this place of prayer. And the first thing we see is the object of the prayer. But understand this. It says Jesus falls to the ground. Now, that, that doesn't mean he, he strolled in and he sat down. And it doesn't mean he strolled in and he just kneeled down. I mean, a, a, a common, common praying position was kneeling or standing with, with your hands up like this. It just says he, he walked in and he fell down. He was under pressure. So he doesn't calmly sit. He doesn't calmly kneel. He doesn't calmly bow. He falls to the ground. And, and then we see that, that he cries out. And that's important because remember, he said, I'm just going to go a little further into the garden. You three stay back here and watch. I want you to be alert. I want you to pay attention. I'm just going to go in here a little bit. And he cries out. I want you to remember that they can hear him. There's a good chance they can even see him a little further in the garden. He cries out. And the first address, he uses Abba. We all know the term Abba. All right, it's, it's the Aramaic equivalent of daddy. Right? And it was used in Jewish households, but it was never. It was never used by Jewish leaders to address God. Man, you, you, you want to get hit with a big stick or something, you go in the synagogue and start praying and, and use the word, you know, Abba, and, you know, the guys with the beards and, and the clubs would come over and, you know, they wail on you. I don't know if that's true. I, I just made that up. Please don't take that down as fact. I don't know if they had guys with beards and clubs or not. 
But I do know, I mean, they killed people if they, got past a, you know, if they went past a wall, so somebody had to have some kind of weapon. I, I don't know. Anyway. But he uses this intimate term, daddy, that Peter, James, and John, they, they would have heard the term in their household. They would have heard it in different places they visited. And so here they hear Jesus crying out to his father, using a term they would never use for God, but yet saying, Dad, he's crying out. And the point being, it conveys this idea of intense intimacy. If you're a father, you know that if your child comes to you and says, Father, could I do this? It is much different than if they come to you and say, Dad, can I do this? It's a whole different feel, a whole different groove. If they say, Father, you, you need to be on your guard because there's, there's something, I don't know, there's, there's something bad coming along. So, so it's this idea of intense intimacy. But here's what's cool, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. We enjoy similar intimacy with God Almighty. We enjoy similar, let me say it again. We enjoy similar intimacy with God Almighty. Romans 8, 15 says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but... Remember, I love divine conjunctions. But you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out. What do we cry out? Abba, Father. Paul's writing. He's trying, he's trying to encourage these people. You're not slaves. You are sons. And you have the privilege to cry out, Abba, Father. We enjoy the same type of intimacy. Galatians 4, 6 says the same thing. We can cry out to him in times of great joy and deep sorrow and intense suffering. We have this intimacy with God the Father. So we see Jesus comes along and he cries out. Amidst his suffering. But then we get to the cup. And here's where things get really interesting. He says, if it's possible because all things are possible with you, remove this cup. Remove this cup. Now we know in the Old Testament that the cup was often a sign of divine wrath. And, and I put a slew of scripture up there. Everybody knows what a slew is, right? Slew is a whole bunch. It's, just, it's a slew. But it's a sign of divine wrath. We know that Hebrews 9.28 says that Christ was set to bear the sins of many. And we know that Isaiah 53.10 and 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he was set to have the fullness of divine wrath fall on him. The fullness of divine wrath fall on him. So remember, that, that's the cup we're talking about. It's a cup of divine wrath. Any takers? It's a cup of divine wrath. It was set to fall on Christ. But John 10 says, we need to remember, He did it willingly. John 10, 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father... He, he, was, he was explaining this to the religious rulers. He said, look, 
I lay my life down. I can take it up again. I have the authority. He's trying to, as I used to tell my students, he's trying to explain it to them. Let me explain about my taking my life and authority. It says, this commandment I received from my father. He did it willingly. But I want to look at this whole remove thing in, in two different lights. Because I, I think there's an immediate element to it. I think there's an immediate element to it. Why? Because remember, this is a time of intense trial. Jesus has fallen on the ground and he's praying, he's crying out, Abba, Father! We've never seen him experience this kind of pressure, this kind of turmoil, this kind of anything before. The disciples, they've, they've never seen this side of Jesus. They've never seen him falling down under pressure and just distressed and distraught. So I think there's an immediacy to some of this. He's, he's under this trial. We understand that he, he prayed three times. That he prayed, it says he prayed the same words three times. Why is that important? Well, I don't know. I, I think, remember, I, I go back to the whole infernal pressure thing. I, I think each time there, there was an infernal attack on him. I, I think each time, just like Satan tempted it, you know, however many years before, three times. He prays three times. Hebrews 5, 7 talks about this though because it says his prayers were heard. It said in the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one, capital O, able to save him from death and he was heard because of his piety. So I think, I think there was an immediacy to his prayer. It says, Dad, can, can you help me? Here. I think he was looking for peace. So there's an immediacy, but there was also the element of the imminent. Okay, we have the immediate, but we also have the imminent. And not eminent with an E, that's a whole different word. Don't confuse them. Imminent. Because Jesus was feeling the impending weight of what was to come. He was feeling the impending weight uh, uh, of the sin, and particularly the separation. Right? The sin and the separation. Being judged and abandoned by God. Having that full cup of wrath fall on Him. You see, the sinless Son of God had never been cut off before. He never experienced separation like that before. So he was feeling the imminent weight of that. Now I've, I gotta tell you, I, I've read a ton on this. I've listened to messages, and, and you could, man, you could catch a variety of messages with this. And frankly, I. I'm going to say something scary. I, I don't know. 
because I've heard some people go so far as saying, God, if there's any other way than the cross, well, I want that way. I struggle with that. I struggle with Jesus saying to his Father, if there's any other way other than the cross, why? Well, let's look at his track record. Jesus has known about the cross for a long time. He's been pointing to it and preaching about it and preparing for it. But I understand where they get that. Because they say, well, you're saying, God, if, there's, if it's possible to remove this cup, then remove it. And of course he qualifies because he understands that with God all things are possible, so God can accomplish it. Yeah, we, we, we get that. And I've heard some people preach about the, the physical aspect of it. He was just, he was just burdened by you know, the, the, the torture and the abuse and the crucifixion. And yeah, there's an element of that, but boy, please, please, please don't make it about the physical. Because if Jesus was praying to have the, the, the physical burden removed, then he's no better than a lot of the martyrs that said, whatever you want to do to me. You know, I'll preach Christ and him crucified. So, so, so don't take the physical tack. I think, I think the biggest element of the cup was this idea of I am going to be cut off from the Father. I'm going to be cut off. I'm going to be separated. And I'm going to have this phenomenal cup of weight dropped on me. And really, I, I think the element is, he's saying, Dad, you know, if, if it's possible to not be separated while I'm on the cross, never experienced that. And so we have the object of his prayer. He's crying out to God the Father. And he quickly qualifies his request because we see the obedience therein. He says, I understand all things are possible with you and it's not my will but your will. It's not what I want, but what you want. And we also need to understand this, that Jesus' human will was, was distinct from, but not in opposition to the Father's will. Okay? It was distinct from, but not in opposition to. He couldn't have been who He was and been in opposition. John 5.30 and 6.38 clarify some things for us. He's saying, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him, God Almighty, who sent me. John 6, 38 brings it more. It says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the One who sent me. So His will 
was distinct. And it was, it was desired. See, Jesus understood that the answer wasn't governed by his desire, but by the Father's. He said, it's not about my desires, it's about, Father, what you desire, what you want. Mark 8, 31 brings out two very important words. It says, he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man, and if you're an underliner, underline this, the Son of Man must suffer. He didn't say the Son of Man might suffer. The Son of Man possibly could suffer. The Son of Man, if the stars line up the right way and if people make the, the decisions, you know, they can change God's mind and all that stuff. If all that happens, he might suffer. No. He says, look, I'm trying to understand, help you understand that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be killed, and after three days rise again. It was a must. And it was desired. And then I think we see this distress that Jesus walked into the garden with. I, I think it's replaced with a sense of peace. Because we get, we get no other account of him being you know, in internal, internal turmoil. We don't see that. Now yes, we understand, goodness, he suffered horrifically. He suffered externally. And not until he came to that time of the weight and the burden and the separation did he come again. So I think, I think this pressure is replaced by peace. And the last thing that, that really I see Mark bring out through the rest of the account is, yes, it was a place of peace. and It was a place of pressure. It was a place of prayer. But we also see that it was a place of priorities. Verse 37 to 42. 30, 37 says, He came and found him sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying. You may not come into temptation. Spirit's willing. Flesh is weak. Again he went away, prayed, saying the same words. Again he came, found him sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. They didn't know what to answer him. He came the third time and said to him, Are you still sleeping and resting? It's enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Two beholds in there. So Mark, what Mark shows us in, in this place of priorities is, is a contrast between the sinless Savior and these sinful men. So the first thing we see is the Master. And we, we understand that Jesus' overarching priority in His entire life, His overarching priority in His entire life was to do the Father's will. That was his overarching priority. I put up a few verses. Tons of stuff in John. And if you don't get them all written down, it's okay. I can email them to you, whatever else. But we understand that from his childhood, he was about his father's business. That's what he did. Where was he in Luke 2.49? He was hanging out at the temple. He said, well, you should have known I'd be here. It's my, it's my father's house. I'm, I'm about what he's about. So... 
The priority of his life was to do the will of his father. He completely fulfilled that will. The way ahead was never in question. Right? The way ahead, there was never a question, there was never a doubt. So he says, I must suffer. These things must happen. These things will happen. This is going to take place. So it was never a question. His purpose and priorities were never in question. So that's the master. But we understand, yes, the disciples struggled. So we see the men. Now the first thing, really the first problem is simply in, in the term, men. Because, man, we, we are carnal creatures. We struggle. Maybe you don't struggle. I don't know. But I struggle. So that's the first problem. Let's remember that. And then I also want us to remember a few other things. Now remember, these guys, we got special, we're going to pick on Peter, James, and John. All right, but remember, they are tired. They are physically and emotionally tired. They're probably frustrated. They're probably confused. And remember I said we were like a stone's throw away? They can hear the master's anguish. They can probably even see him. Maybe they see him go in and stumble and fall. I don't know. But they can hear what's going on. They don't know what to do or how to help. Because he told them to stay there, so they're staying. But it's not like, you know, we don't even see Peter. This is what's interesting. Because I, I really firmly believe those three heard what was going on, and Peter didn't move. I think maybe there's an angel there just holding him. <laughs> Say, Peter, no, you don't get to go. You have to stay here. Because that's who Peter was. Peter, the bullman, he would have gone charging and said, what's wrong? You know, what, how can I help? What can I slay? That's just Peter, man. That's who he was. So they don't know what to do or how to help. And here's what we know, too. Sometimes, sometimes sleep is an escape. Sometimes sleeping is an escape. And maybe, maybe they're, you know, in their confusion and frustration, maybe there's some depression in there. And they just, what do we do? We don't know what to do. We're tired. They fall asleep. Now, understand this. I'm not trying to make excuses for those three. I just want us to understand, sometimes we need to temper our harshness of the disciples. Because it's really easy to say, oh, those guys, Jesus told them, we'll watch, and they just, they're out. But I think we need to temper our harshness. That's why we need to understand from whence we have come. So, so the first problem we understand, yeah, they're men, and they've got struggles, and they're struggling, and things are not going the way they planned, and they, they just they don't know really what's next. I mean, in the back of their minds, they know what's next, but they don't know what's next. So we get to the flip side. Because while we're not making excuses for them, we need to understand, he told them to watch. He says, I want you to watch. You ever have a child, and you tell them... Do one thing. This is all I want you to do. All you have to do is put on your socks. That's all you have to do. You sit down and you put on your socks. You put on the left sock and you put on the right sock. And you can come back in five minutes. And 
there'll be army men out, and you know there'll be people in the dollhouse, and you know they'll be they'll be wearing three changes of clothes, but they'll be barefoot. He says, "Look, it's one simple thing. I told you, put on socks. They tell you to do all these other things." Jesus says, "Look, I want you to watch." And, and the idea, or, or the word watch, means I want you to be alert. Please be alert. The world needs more alerts. All right? He says, I want you to be alert. I want you to pay attention. I want you to watch. He gets back the first time. And what's he do? He looks at Peter, and he doesn't call him Peter. Why is that significant? He calls him Simon. What was Simon? Simon was his old name with his old self and his old nature. What was coming out? The old man was coming out. The old self was coming out. The selfish part was coming out. He says, Simon. Simon, Simon by the way, the name, the name means has heard. Isn't that great? The name Simon means has heard or has been listening. I just think that's kind of ironic. So, so he, he says, Look, let, me, let me expand it for you. I want you to watch and pray. And then he gives them this contrast between the spirit and flesh, and we can break it down this way, his, his brief diatribe. He says, I want you to watch. That is, I want you to be alert to spiritual dangers. I want you to be alert to spiritual dangers. I want you to pray. I want you to acknowledge your dependence on God. Why? So that you will not fall. So that you will not come into temptation. I want you to watch, I want you to pay attention, I want you to pray, be dependent, so that you will not come into temptation. What is poignant about this? It anticipated the tests that were immediately coming. What was immediately coming? Man, as his arrest in verse, or chapter 14, verse 50, his text says, they all fled. They all fled. And then he says, look, the spirit that is your inner desires and your best intentions your inner desires and best intentions, the Spirit's willing or eager. Well, we know Peter's eager. Verse 29 shows us his eagerness. Verse 31 shows us Peter's good intentions, right? But the body, literally the flesh, a person in their humanness and their inadequacies, and that's us, is weak and is easily overwhelmed if you're not following steps 1, 2, and 3. We saw that last week with Peter in verse 37. Peter had great intentions, we understand that. He had great intentions. He says, I'm going to die with you. But his flesh was weak. He says, oh, okay, no, I'm going to disown you instead. So Jesus is foreshadowing this for them. And especially, especially for Peter, because three times... Peter failed to watch and pray. Three times he fell into temptation and denied Jesus. But we need to understand that the, the warning applies to all of us. It applies to all of us. We're all susceptible to spiritual failure. Why? Because we have good intentions, but we are still human. So we understand the first problem, but we also understand the flip side. He said, look, this is what I want you to do. It's not complicated. And finally, the chief element of contrast really comes down to this word surrender. It just comes down to the word surrender. You see, 
the disciples ultimately surrendered to what? They surrendered to, to weakness, to fear, to fatigue, to desires, to whatever else. They relied on their own strength. And we contrast that with Jesus who was what? Completely surrendered to and dependent on His Father. He faced greater trials, temptations, and struggles in a mortal body and still stayed surrendered. He still stayed surrendered. Let me help you with something. We don't like the word surrender. This doesn't have good connotations. You know, if you're on a team and you're going against the other team, you don't want to surrender. That, That doesn't look good. We like surrender as much as we like trust and obey. I think that's the triumvirate of, of, you know, terms that we have trouble with. (laughs) All right? Trust, obey, surrender. You know, we sing that song sometimes, I surrender all. When really, you know, we should be singing, I surrender some, or I surrender most. I surrender most. I surrender most. Most to thee, my precious Savior. But that, isn't that what it is, though? I mean, we, we, we can sit here and ask ourselves, am I surrendered? Are my trials surrendered? Are my temptations surrendered? Are my struggles surrendered? Are my selfish desires surrendered? Are my worries... Are my worries surrendered? Is my willfulness surrendered? See, I want, us to, I want us to understand our Savior's surrender. Because he was, he was in a body like ours. He underwent much, much more than any of us have. And he still stayed surrendered to the will of his Father. We should be able to do no less. We should be able to be surrendered. We should be able to trust. We should be able to obey. And here's the key thing too. When we don't, And aren't you glad that the scripture says his mercy is renewed every morning? You know, we, we have to surrender our failures. Peter had to surrender his failure. Man, if Peter hadn't surrendered his, his horrific denial of, of Christ, he would have been worthless. He would have been that guy wandering around, you know, bemoaning his entire life. I could have done this. I could have been a church planner. He would have been that guy who was just miserable in his flesh. Rather than surrender and saying, look, God, I, I failed you, but it's new. I'm not going to fail today. Or if I do fail today, it's new. So church, are we surrendered? And then just those, those two little things that Jesus told his disciples, look, I want you to be alert, and I want you to be dependent. I want you to be alert. Because trials and temptations come in all shapes and sizes, we know that. 
So if you are alert and understand that trials and temptations come in all different sizes, then, man, it makes it better if you're dependent on God. Please don't rest in your own strength and your own abilities. Let's be a surrendered church. Because surrender involves trial, it involves change, it involves challenge. And it can involve some neat blessings and victory. Let's pray. Lord God, we uh, Father, there, there's so much we could say, and there is so much we can pull out of your time in the garden with your Father, your Son. So Lord, just help us this morning to be, Father, simply surrendered completely to you. Surrender to your will, your desires, your way. Lord, help us to, to get ourselves out of the way. And Father, if there's someone here who is simply struggling with surrendering their heart, Lord, if, they've, if they are under pressure from you, Lord, we praise you for your convicting and your saving power. And Father, we ask that you be glorified in that. So Lord, again, as we say so often, help us and thank you that you give us hope. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.